0: Hi, I'm David Drubin. I'm a professor at UC Berkeley and department co-chair. And today I'd like to tell you about actin endocytosis in the early days of yeast cell biology. This is a ribbon diagram of an actin monomer. Uh, The the functional form of actin is a polymer of actin monomers, shown here. This um, is an actin filament, and it's made of these um, monomers, which have assembled into this sort of helical, uh, flexible filament. One of the most important features of actin filaments is their polarity. And what that means is that each of the monomers in the filament is assembled in the same orientation. So, in other words, in this diagram, the nucleotide binding cleft is pointed down in every monomer. And so this end, which is sometimes called the minus end, or pointed end, is different from this end, which is the barbed end of the actin filament that polarity has important functional consequences for the filament. First of all, one end of the actin filament grows much better than the other end. That is the so-called plus end of the filament, or barbed end. Um, The other consequence is that myosin motor proteins will only move in one direction on the actin filament, and so typically they will move towards the plus end of the actin filament. Now, in cells... Actin, which in these diagrams is shown in red, has many different kinds of organization. And so, in the top three cells are all epithelial cells, and there are three kinds of actin structures. And each of these actin structures performs different functions. The actin structures over here are are making microvilli in the top of this epithelial cell. The actin structures here are giving the cell cortex its rigidity, and the actin structure here is forming an adhesion belt that can um, create forces within tissue layers of cells. The bottom set of cells are all fibroblasts. And so you can see that the same fibroblast cell can have many different networks of actin. There's the cortex, the lamellipodial actin, the filopodial actin, and stress fibers. And each of these has a distinct composition and a distinct function in the cell. And when the cell goes into cell division, all of these structures disassemble, and a cytokinetic ring assembles. When division is over, the cytokinetic ring disassembles, and all the other structures that were there in the interphase cell reassemble. So, we'd like to understand how these different structures assemble and disassemble and perform their different functions in cells. And so, in order to... to understand how my actin does this mechanistically, we need to, one, understand the mechanistic properties of... Uh, actin, the intrinsic properties of actin itself, and the properties that are uh, added to the cytoskeleton by various actin-binding proteins. And so, this is an experiment in which uh, an actin filament was first coated with the myosin... Heav- um, the, the myosin head group, and it decorated a, a segment of the myos- of the actin filament, and then... Actin monomers, additional monomers, were added. And you can see that the monomers preferentially assembled on the plus end of the actin filament, revealing that polarity that I was talking about a second ago. And so, Tom Pollard did a sort of a heroic effort in which he measured the, on the, the uh, assembly and disassembly rate constants for the GTP... I'm sorry, the ATP and the ADP actin monomers as they assemble on actin filaments. And um, from this very detailed analysis of the physical properties, assembly and disassembly of the actin filament, we learned some important things. We learned that actin preferentially assembles on the plus end. We learned that actin filaments disassemble much too slowly for uh, their disassembly to drive the rearrangements of actin that occur in cells, based just on disassembly of pure actin, there must be other factors in the cell that mediate the disassembly of actin filaments. We also know from the work of others, uh, Pantalone and Carlier, for example, that when actin assembles, it assembles as ATP actin, and then the, the assembly triggers the hydrolysis of ATP to ADP, and then there's another... there's a delay, and then there's the release of the inorganic phosphate, and one then has ADP actin. So, as one looks through an actin filament, the new... the most recently assembled part of the filament is ATP actin, and then there's sort of a gradient to ADPPI actin, and the oldest part of the actin is ADP actin. And that has very important consequences for the regulation of the turnover of the actin filament. Okay, this is a very busy slide, but it's meant to be busy to show you the complexity of regulation of actin. On the top... We see, again, the structure of the actin monomer with its nucleotide binding cleft. We see the assembly reactions for uh, the assembly of actin. The rate-limiting step is to make a nucleus, or trimer, of actin, which is very slow. And then we see that there are proteins that regulate different aspects of actin's assembly and interactions. There are proteins that bind to monomers. There are nucleating proteins called formins in the ARP2-3 complex. And there are proteins that uh, interact specifically with the filament to either cross-link the filament or to sever the filament or to cap growing filaments. And finally, there are myosins that create forces on the filaments. So, the bio... these um, proteins were largely identified biochemically, and their mechanisms were worked out biochemically. And so, biochemistry can tell you how things might work in the cell, but they can't tell you how things do work in the cell. For that you need to do studies in cells. And and for those sorts of studies, model organisms have played a very important role. One of the key model organisms was the Listeria monocytogenes, a, a pathogen. And then others are the model organisms like yeast, worms, flies, and so on and so forth. And so some of the questions that we'd like to know about actin function in vivo are, what are actin's key biological functions? How are actin functions affected by actin's intrinsic properties by actin-binding proteins... which proteins and how do they work? What are the emergent properties when the combinations of these proteins function together in cells? And finally, how do actin assembly and myosin motors together create forces inside cells? So, uh, when one looks at actin assembly uh, for pure actin in a test tube, as was done in this experiment, there's a fluorescence assay that, that can be used. And if you look at pure actin alone, when it assembles, it assembles very slowly, okay? And there's a bit of a lag phase. And that's because the rate-limiting step in assembly of actin filaments is forming a new filament. You can bypass this rate-limiting step by adding a nucleator, such as the ARP2-3 complex or formins, and that was done in this second uh, curve, where a nucleator was added. And you can see the actin assembled explosively without any delay, Okay. So, how do we know then, in the cell, how actin is being regulated? and some of the key advances in understanding actin assembly in the context of the cytoplasm in a cell were made as a result of a discovery that was reported here by Tilney and Portnoy in 1989. This paper was very influential because it really set up the 1990s as the decade when much of the mechanistic understanding of how actin is regulated in cells were worked out. And a lot of those studies used this Listeria system. So, what happens? Listeria, this pathogen, interacts with a host cell. And it gets taken up by phagocytosis. And then it it does some remarkable things. It breaks out of the phagosome. And then the most remarkable thing is it starts to assemble actin around the, the pathogen. And the actin then makes a tail. And that tail causes the listeria to be propelled through the cytoplasm. Sometimes the listeria will crash into the neighboring cell, and then it will get taken up by phagocytosis into the neighboring cell through this actin-mediated process. And that... by that process, it avoids uh, detection by the immune system. Okay, so what were some of the key discoveries that were made with listeria? Well, first, there was a, a bacterial... Protein called ActA that was found by transposon mutagenesis to be the key protein for uh, nucleating actin assembly. It was a key bacterial protein, and it interacted with a host protein complex uh, in order to do that. And so that was found by uh, the ActA was found by Pascal Cosart. The motility mechanism, how does actin, how does the actin cytoskeleton generate motile forces in cells, was then worked out using the listeria system by Terio. Terrio- Michison, Tilney, and Portnoy. And finally, the ARP23 complex was shown to be a major cellular nucleator of actin assembly thanks to the work of, uh, of Welch and colleagues in the Michison lab. Okay, so the ARP23 complex then. So the ARP23 complex was purified in Tom Pollard's lab um, by Laura Michesky. And it was a fascinating complex of seven proteins, two of which are related to actin. At the time it was discovered, the function of the complex was not known. Matt Welch, as a postdoc in the Mitchison lab, tried to purify the host factor that allowed *Listeria* to propel itself through the cytoplasm, and he identified the ARP2-3 complex as the key uh, mediator of actin assembly. Next, um, I want to just mention that the other major nucleator in cells is called... are called the formins, and they were found in this paper, which was a very important paper by Boone and Brecher and Zygmunt and Bee's labs, all collaborating with, with each other. And this was a really fascinating protein that nucleates actin, and it stays associated, uh, really interestingly, with the fast-growing end of the actin filament. Okay, back to Listeria. So, what's really interesting, then, is that the bacterial pathogen Listeria monocytogenes makes its own protein called ActA, and that activates the ARP2-3 complex to nucleate actin assembly. So... That... this led to the search for the host activator of the arp 23 complex. And several labs, all at once, identified this protein, n as a cellular activator of this arp 23 complex, which was another important advance. It turns out that another pathogen, called this uh, Shigella, intercepts the same assembly pathway, but it does it upstream from n and it activates n to turn on actin assembly. Okay. So... but how does listeria motility work? One can imagine two general scenarios. It could be that um, the listeria assemble an actin tail, and that the, then myosins act on that tail to propel the listeria through the cytoplasm. Alternatively, it's possible that the assembly of actin itself could be what drives the motility of listeria. Um, and if that happens, how does it happen? And so this was a really important paper, then, by Terio et al., Um, And what they did is... a very clever experiment. They watched listeria moving through the cytoplasm in phase. It's very hard to see in these um, micrographs, but it's this dark thing here. And then, in these cells, they introduced a photoactivatable actin. And what they did is, as the listeria moved through the cytoplasm, they photoactivated a, a bar in the actin tail. Okay? And then they watched what happens over time. If the tail was getting pushed through the cytoplasm, then that actin bar... that that photoactivated actin bar should have moved along with the listeria through the cytoplasm. But that's not what happened. As the listeria continued to move through the cytoplasm, this photoactivated bar or spot stayed in the same place as the listeria moved away. And that could only have happened if actin was continuously assembling at the listeria and propelling it through the cytoplasm. Okay. So the conclusion from this paper, we propose that actin polymerization provides the driving force for bacterial propulsion. This was a really important advance, showing that actin assembly itself could generate forces that would drive objects like listeria through the cytoplasm and uh, not too big a leap to imagine that this is the same mechanism that drives a cell as it migrates uh, across a surface. So... The other, you know, really great leap using this system was the total reconstitution of motility in the lab of Pantalone and Carlier. And so they reconstituted um, in vitro the motility of Listeria and Shigella. And what they found is that three... only three factors in the host cytoplasm were necessary and sufficient for motility of the Listeria. And those are shown over here. Those were the arp 23 complex, capping protein that controls the elongation of filaments, and actin deplymerizing factor, otherwise known as cofilin. Okay? Those factors were necessary and sufficient for motility. Other factors, shown here, were um, able to enhance the motility, but they weren't essential for motility. So, just to summarize that, the essential proteins for this bacterial form of motility uh, provided by the host were... In addition to actin, the arp 23 complex, cofilin, and capping protein, and then other proteins like profilin, enhanced the motility. Okay. So, does this mechanism operate in mammalian cells um, for when cells migrate, say, across the surface? So, this is a really nice movie made in the lab of Michael Sixth. And they've... GF... here they've GFP-labeled the arp 23 complex as a cell migrates across the substrate. And what you can see is that at the, le- at the leading edge, as the cell migrates across the substrate, the arp 23 complex is concentrated right at the leading edge of the migrating cell. Is actin assembling at the leading edge of the migrating cell? This has now been demonstrated in a number of labs. This is a particularly nice demonstration from Clemens Rotner's lab. And what they've done is they've uh, expressed m-cherry actin in, this, in a cell to label all the actin structures. And the cell also expresses a photoactivatable GFP. And so what they're going to do is bleach a spot on the surface of this cell... Uh, or I'm sorry, photoactivate the actin on a spot on the surface of the cell, and then watch what happens. And so here they photoactivate the actin, and what you can see is that that activated actin moves away from the leading edge towards the interior. So, in other words, just like in Listeria, actin is assembling at the leading edge and fluxing towards the interior of the cell as the cell migrates forward. Similarly, these experiments from Michael Sick's lab also elegantly demonstrate the same principle. Here, photobleaching is used in a, um, to bleach the actin at the leading edge of a migrating cell, and the bleach spot there migrates inward. Here, using a so-called FLIP, you can bleach the actin in the middle of the cell, and watch when the bleach happens a dark spot appears at the leading edge, again showing that actin is continuously assembling at the leading edge. So, it seems really clear that this mechanism first worked out in Listeria monocytogenes is what's also uh, important for driving motility of mammalian cells. Okay. So, how does that form of motility work? There's a problem here. And what I'm proposing is that you have an actin filament with its fast-growing plus end adjacent to either the plasma membrane of a migrating cell or to a Listeria misogyny and that the new actin monomers are adding on to the end of that filament. But how can they do that if the filament is pushing against the membrane? And so this is a really nice animation made by by Scott Quo at uh, Johns Hopkins. And the idea is that there's a Brownian ratchet at work. And this was an idea put forth by McGillner and Oster. And so, in this system, what happens is there's thermal energy, or Browning motion, and as the end of the filament and the the object that's being moved move apart from each other, new subunits can add. Okay. There have been revisions to this, and so the model... another model is called an elastic Browning match... ratchet. And in this uh, iteration, here, the filaments are actually flexing. And as they flex away from the membrane, more subunits can add. And when they bend back towards the membrane, a pressure builds. And that pressure eventually gets to the point when it can push the object forward, like that. Okay. So, we have this complex system in many different proteins. The core proteins, cofilin, arp 23 um, capping protein, have been found genetically. But, you know, there's something like 50 different proteins that function in a typical uh, mammalian cell when it migrates. How can we work out this through the... or work our way through this complexity and fully understand how the cytoskeletons um, regulate it? And so, one promising approach uh, might be the use of genetics. Genetics revealed the pathways for assembly of these complex phage structures. If genetics could do that, could genetics also help to unravel cytoskeletal functions? Genetics also revealed cell cycle control pathways in yeast. Could genetics then unravel cytoskeletal functions? So, in fact, in yeast cells, genetics were important for uh, working out cell cycle control, signal transduction, membrane trafficking, and and other um, types of processes. But what about the cytoskeleton? Well, one of the limiting um, uh, advances that was needed in order to start studying the cytoskeleton in yeast cells was the ability to actually see cytoskeletal structures, central to all studies on the cytoskeleton is the ability to see where the structures form, because where they form, how they're organized, tells us a lot about how they function. And so, in the 1980s, a big advance was made in yeast, where the lab of... um, the labs of uh, Pringle and um, Kilmartin, and uh, together with a graduate student, Allison Adams, worked out fluorescence microscopy for yeast cells. And so, it was possible... On the top, to see how the actin cytoskeleton was organized. On the bottom, to see how the microtubule cytoskeleton was organized. And, in the end, to work out how these cytoskeletal structures reorganize themselves through the cell cycle. And so this was a very important advance in terms of uh, the ability to now use genetics and ask how mutations uh, in both the major cytoskeletal proteins and in their regulators affect the dynamics, and function of these key cytoskeletal elements. And so, this, the genetics themselves were very powerful, but they'd be even more powerful if it was possible to do biochemistry. And at the same time, advances were made in the ability to isolate cytoskeletal proteins biochemically. In Bruce Albert's lab, Kathy Miller made columns of yeast actin... I mean, of actin filaments and purified drosophila proteins. And it turned out the same trick works in yeast, here, the protein fimbrin, an actin-bundling protein, was identified. Genetics could also be used to identify uh, uh, actin-binding proteins and to reveal their functions. Here, Allison Adams did a genetic screen in the Botstein lab where she um, started with a wild-type actin, and the idea was it could interact normally with the various binding proteins needed for its function. And then she started with a mutant of actin, and the assumption was that this mutant would not be able to interact normally with some of its binding partners. But function could then be restored, either by making a revertant of the actin, or by getting an extragenic suppressor in another gene. And in fact, the first gene she found was the gene SAC6, which encodes yeast fimbrin. So, the gene- there was this convergence between the genetics and the biochemistry. And when those two uh, processes could both be applied to yeast, they made the system particularly powerful. There were a few other advances that helped make yeast a very powerful organism for cell biology studies of actin. Ken Wirtman made a large library of site-directed mutants in actin. He made 36 different mutants on many of the surfaces of the actin monomer shown here, color-coded. And these were very useful because they've... each mutant disrupts different interactions with the actin monomer. So, for example, the binding sites for phylloidin and latrunculin were mapped using these... this collection of mutants. Finally, a tool that's very important for studies of actin function in other cells um, wasn't available in yeast, and that is a small molecule inhibitor. So, in many cells, cytochalasin D had been the popular inhibitor for inhibiting actin assembly, but cytochalasin D didn't do anything to yeast cells. And so Catherine Ayskoff looked around through the literature at some of the obscure inhibitors of actin assembly, and she found one called latrunculin A, And latrunculin A worked beautifully at binding actin monomers and preventing their polymerization. And so this tool was really a a nice addition to the tool chest for studies in yeast cells. And it allowed Catherine, for for example, to show which pathways were actin-dependent and which pathways were actin-independent when a yeast cell begins to develop cell polarity. So, finally, then, the stage was set to begin to study... Uh, new biologies and make new discoveries in yeast. And endocytosis had been well-characterized morphogenetically in uh, mammalian cells. The pathway of formation of clathrin-coated vesicles in pits had been worked out. And um, these uh, replica... Um, uh, uh, replicas... Uh, uh, platinum replicas of the plasma membrane of mammalian cells had shown that clathrin often is interacting closely with actin filaments. And so um, now... although the functions of these interactions hadn't been revealed, and so now the tools were in place to make some new discoveries of uh, how the actin cytoskeleton and other cytoskeletal elements are functioning in yeast... in yeast cells. And so, in conclusion, so now we had a set of tools that we could use to study cell biological problems in yeast cells... Um, We could study... we've learned uh, up till now that actin assembly regulation is very complex, that the biochemists, um, people like the Pollard Lab and the Carlier Lab, have done a fantastic job working out the biochemistry and identifying lots of factors that regulate the assembly and disassembly, or at least that have the capacity to do that in vitro. But uh, actin's functions in vivo had not been completely determine in how actin cytoskeletal proteins regulate actin in the context of living cell, what the emergent properties of the complex system hadn't been worked out. And so, in the end, the simplicity uh, and ease of biochemistry, imaging, and genetics in yeast cells made yeast very attractive for studies of actin functions in vivo.